the ASCO Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton. Okay, could you just tell us who you are, please, starting with you, Mick? I'm Mick Waters. I uh, have been around the educational block several times, done jobs with schools, with local authorities and with national government under QCA. And currently I work in a range of positions helping schools and governments in different places. And I think it's fair to say, Mick, when you say you've been around the block, it's been quite, quite a block. Just give us a flavour of some of those roles, both within schools and local authorities. Uh, I've been a head teacher of a couple of schools, and then I worked in teacher education in the north in Cumbria, based at Charlotte Mason College and Lancaster University. I also work for Birmingham City Authority under Tim Brighouse as uh, what in those days was called Chief Advisor, Next, I went to Manchester as Chief Education Officer before uh, taking a post at QCA as Director of Curriculum. Uh, I left there as uh, the Tories came to power and uh, went to work for the Black Country Challenge and later for Wolverhampton University on a range of school improvement and support projects, both locally and internationally. Thank you very much. I hadn't realised you'd worked un- under Tim. I hope, hope the counselling is still available uh, there. So, Tim, let's let's just get a flavour of um, the block you've been around. OK, well, I'll start with that last bit because I first met Mick when he was a registered inspector of schools and he came to a school, which I better remain nameless, but it was in it, it, it was a large primary school and the head had really gone to sleep on the school and I was dreading it being the first school to be found wanting. So I carefully persuaded him that he ought to leave, but he, but, but he wouldn't leave until the summer. And then <clears throat> the inspection arrived. And uh, I, I said, well, look, if you get into trouble, just, just, just get me to the school to talk to the inspector. Well, around about the Thursday, it was June, I remember, and he... I got a message, would I get to the school as soon as possible? And I thought, oh, dear, dear, dear. Um, actually, it was more swearing in my mind than that. And <laughs> off I went to this school and was listening to the car radio on the way. And as I walked into the school, I met this kind of uh, tall, good-looking guy uh, who was the inspector, who turned out later to be Waters. And he came towards me and he said, look, this is very serious. And I said, well, it depends what you mean by serious. And he said, what do you mean? So I said, well, Australia are 36 for four at Edgbaston. He said, you what? So I said, well, they're 36 for four. He said, well, that is serious. How do you know? So I said, well, I listened to the car radio. So we went into the my car and listened to the cricket and uh, once I'd persuaded him that the head was going to go, this is terribly uncovering of Ofsted uh, techniques in those days, he was inclined to give it a, a not quite a disastrous rating. Uh, and uh, later, when I lost the uh, chief advisor post, I was determined to have this guy uh, working with me. I never noticed, Mick, that you worked under me, um, but uh, certainly it was great fun, and uh, that was how I met Mick. Before that, I'd been for 10 years education officer in Oxfordshire, used to work in the ILEA. Uh, before that, worked in various local authorities, including uh, one in Wales, where I also taught, and I taught in Derbyshire, and I was born in 1940, so I ought to be giving up this uh, nonsense, um, and, and and then finally, I ended my career 
as Commissioner for London Schools and reading, leading the London Challenge. I suppose the, the, the most interesting thing is that at the age of 10, I was a school phobic and, and um, started every day uh, being sick or, or, and weeping myself to sleep at night. And uh, it was in the Midlands. <coughs> Sorry about that. And um, lo and behold, my dad lost his job and we moved to East Anglia. And I went into a new school and within hours, I, I just noticed the difference. So at the age of 10, before anybody had done any research on school improvement, I noticed schools were very different. And uh, school improvement turned out to be the thing that uh, fascinated th me throughout my career. And I still am fascinated by it. Why do some schools succeed and some schools don't? And that comes through loud and clear in the book, which is called About Our Schools, colon, Improving on Previous Best. So what I'd like to do is to talk about the book. I, I get sent and I read lots and lots of books about education. This one feels to me distinctively different from a lot of those, partly because you bring an extraordinary historical perspective. I mean, you, you kind of start in 1945, but it really begins around 1976. And we'll just talk about that in a second. So one is it gives us this panorama of what education has been like over the past 50 years and what we can learn from it. But secondly, what you do is you bring lots of eyewitnesses to that. And I wonder, Mick, if I could start with you, what was the idea behind the book? And how did you bring those different voices in? I mean, you've got, for example, a whole uh, array of former education secretaries. Um, what, what, what's the thinking behind that? Uh, well, Jeff, the, the book began with uh, a sort of ambition on our part to see whether we could talk with uh, those secretaries of state that were still available and, and try and reflect with them on the progress that had been made in schooling since they had been in in office, and so we 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 sort of <laughs> had a shot at writing to them and saying, "Would you mind talking to the to us?" And surprisingly, most of them did. And the more some did, the more others wanted to, because they didn't sort of seem to want to be left out. So we did get these secretaries of state to talk with us about what they were trying to do at the time whether they thought they had a clear vision of where they were trying to get to and the sorts of things that they they were sort of driving forward as part of government policy or whether it was personal belief or 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 where they thought education should unfold now and, and whether they looked back and reflected on a good time or a bad time. So we sat off to do this and, of course, what happened was that different education secretaries said to us, well, you ought to talk with... And they'd mention a civil servant or a, a spab from the time or, or a minister. And so we talked to those and they would say to us, well, you ought to talk with. And gradually this book went from tr trying to talk with education secretaries to talking with people who had different perspectives on various issues that were being discussed as the book unfolded. And, and what we'd intended as a almost a history book with reflection became part history, part uh, personal reflection, part uh, uh, perceptions of different people involved in the in the period that we're talking about, and and part our our sort of analysis of where 
education has improved and it's certainly improved over the 45 years since 1976 uh, and where it needs to now move as we come to the end hopefully of this awful pandemic and we sense that people are on the edge of a new era and wanting to take education forward with a different perspective so the book sort of unfolded as we went it was a very quick book we only started 12 months before we finished it but uh, it's certainly a lot of text to take in and we hope it gives people an insight into the world that they operate in or did operate in and I'm, I'm going to ask you, Tim, just to, to reflect on, on that. I mean, what surprised me is how many people you had speaking on the record, which I perhaps hadn't expected. But also, did, did you feel you got a real sense of candour from those education secretaries? Or is there always a little bit of, of a sense of mythologising what they may or may not have achieved? I mean, you make the point, for example, at one point in the book, that the person who probably has the biggest capacity to change the curriculum in England schools is not the Secretary of State for Education, it's the Chief Inspector. Yeah. Well, we think that the influence of Ofsted is, in, is, is enormous um, because uh, that they affect actually how whatever the Secretary of State or the National Curriculum Councillors was or, or the QCA decide, schools will respond to what Ofsted say they want to do. So um, we certainly had a go at trying to talk to chief inspectors and they were remarkably honest uh, and uh, that's not to say that others weren't um, and we cleared everything with them so if anybody wanted not to use the quotations we intended to draw from then they had the capacity to say uh, well, no, I'd rather not. And in fairness, none of the uh, the, the secretaries of state uh, all agreed. I, I think uh, David Blunkett was the only one who changed something, and that was merely because our grammar was wrong, uh, rather than anything else. Um, so that's how we got to the evidence. Um, a mix right. It didn't take us that long to write. What really took us a long time was the editing process. Yeah, I can t totally believe that. And I think it's probably worth saying that whilst there are some very recognisable names in there, so, for example, the Secretary of State, you've also talked to a whole range of people who, who will be recognisable in their own context. Possibly they'll be recognisable nationally, but, but essentially they are still rooted in the system. You've got MAT leaders, for example, head teachers, etc., also t talking about their experience. So it gives this extraordinary kind of comprehensive view of what we've learned about the system. And I think let's just... Go on to that. And again, I'll come to Mick first and then ask you, Tim, in response to this. feels to me that what we're saying is 1945-ish, 44, is, is really important because you get Rab Butler and you get a new direction for education, which is saying there is an entitlement to education, including for secondary young people, and it is the state that's going to provide. That's the starting point. Then you get kind of 1976-ish and you get Callaghan basically opening up the secret garden with his Ruskin speech and Shirley Williams's watch. Then the big changes come around Kenneth Baker. I'd like to just get your reflection on what Kenneth Baker did, because you talk about moving from one era into an era of, which I think you define as managerialism, and then the next era is the kind of 2010, 2011 Michael Gove era. So first of all, Mick, have I got the chronology right? Am I, am I picking out the landmark moments? And can you just reflect on why, if those are landmark moments, why they are? And then I'll come to you, Tim, after that. Absolutely, Jeff. You've, you've picked it spot on. Basically, straight after the war, there was a period of optimism and trust in 
in public sector really that people wanted the country to be something it hadn't and to build on the on the aftermath of the war and so they they lived with what the public sector offered until a period of doubt and disillusion began to set in during the the, six, the late 60s and then Callaghan brought that to a head with his Ruskin speech which questioned what was going on in our schools and importantly what was going on in the classrooms because that was the first time a Prime Minister had really done that which set in train the next few years of uh, what we called doubt and disillusion. We wondered what was happening and a period of sort of mistrust in the system which uh, opened out then with Baker who sort of got, the, got it by the scruff of the neck and said no we're going to do it this way and he led to this period of centralisation, marketisation that schools were then subject to the market and what we see as increasing managerialism and that, that pervades now to such an incredible extent and our, our outlook at the end of the book is that we should be on the, the cusp of a new era of hope ambition and collaborative partnerships where we should use what we've learned from the last 45 years and really take that forward in in the next phase of schooling development so yeah you're absolutely right in the context baker was interesting because he of course brought in the start of this sort of centralized marketized system and yet uh, in his observations of the current uh, educational offer was incredibly scathing. He was incredibly critical of the curriculum, incredibly curriculum of the exam qualifications framework, and he sort of uh, tore it apart. And you thought, here's the man who brought all this stuff in, now wanting to pull up his own plants, really, and and start again. And uh, that was quite a revealing interview out of out of the uh, set that we looked at. We thought there were four secretaries of state who made really significant impact. They were Baker, uh, Blunkett, Gove and Balls and each of those we thought had the, um, the, the the opportunity to think about what they were going to do before they began except perhaps as much so for Balls although he had been centrally involved in a government for some time and probably was driven by that sort of outlook at the time that was very very um, socially focused. And just before I come to Tim, just for your 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 perspective on that history, can I just talk about Ed Balls? Because that was the one name which surprised me. Now, I was ahead during the Ed Balls era, and I hadn't taken in what you say was a sense of radicalism, which was, in a sense, unpicked then, wasn't it, 2010, when symbolically the signs about a department for children, families and education uh, were taken down and it became the Department for Education again. Just just sticking with you, Mick, for a second, what was it that you're saying that Ed Balls did which puts him in that kind of league table of four or so uh, significant players in education secretaries? Yeah, what Balls did was pick on the uh, Every Child Matters agenda that uh, had been introduced by the Treasury, not by education. It was in, in um, response to the Climbier tragedy. And, and uh, the Treasury had brought in edu Every Child Matters as a concept, five outcomes for every child. And Balls saw the link between the Exchequer, which was putting the money into the thing, and all those agencies around which schools work, and, and the realisation that schools could be, as the universal service, uh, the, the hub for the whole of the uh, child's agenda, whether it be to do with work or social or health development and so on 
and, it, and he saw that and he really wanted to push it on. I, it, what came over at the time, and I remember it very clearly, was uh, his image almost as the person who was obsessed with sorting out challenges. Do you remember? He was a bruiser and uh, he, he, he began the national challenge and he, and he, he was seen as a sort of name and shame type uh, Secretary of State. But in his conversations with us, he, he did seem to be able to get that in proportion Though some of the heads who were visited by him at the time talked about his ambition was to get to the floor, which seemed such a such an odd ambition, really. It's sort of a funny <laughs> way of explaining things. Yeah. Um, but but no, he, in a sense, he surprised us. But his intense disappointment when Gove went in on his first day and removed all the symbolic imagery of every child's matter and, if you like, took education, in his view, back a long way. Uh, his intense disappointment was palpable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to come to Tim in a second, just ask you for your kind of historical perspective. And just just before I do that, I just want to say one thing. I Forgive me for saying it like this. I had assumed when I read the book, particularly at the beginning when you talk about that pre-1976 period as being an age of trust and then it moves to the kind of age of um, accountability and managerialism, that this might be a kind of misty-eyed and sentimental sense that if only we went back to the 70s. You're absolutely not saying that. So, Tim, just from your point of view, just just reflect on, on the, the kind of historical perspective you, you saw. Yeah, well, certainly we were very concerned that being of an age we are, that we should be looking forward and learning what's worked and what hasn't worked and far more has worked in the recent age of market centralization and so on uh, even managerialism and by the way the secretary of state started where we start our story when i was uh, first entered primary schools which was just after the 44 act he he, uh, he or she and it was a she then had only three powers uh, one was to remove air raid shelters, the other to secure a sufficient supply of suitably qualified teachers, which Gove gave up, and I don't think he should have done. And uh, thirdly, kind of agreeing or not whether a school could open or close and the capital needed by the local authority to do it. They've now got um, thousands of powers. It runs into thousands. We think it's just over 2,000 powers. Well, you've only got to think of those uh, academies that all have a direct contract with the Secretary of State and so have to do what the Secretary of State asks to realise how much power is now at the centre. Uh, reflecting back on the, the history, I, I would say one of the interesting... Mix made the point that uh, Baker had been involved in business, the business department, uh, which he compared with being manager of Arsenal. And then he went to the Department for Education and he compared that with... Uh, being, I hope football fans won't be upset by this south of the river, but he compared it with being manager of Charlton. And uh, he, he clearly thought uh, that he had implemented... TVEI and computers in schools from the Department of Business rather than the Department of Education. And and so he was well prepared for what he wanted to do. Uh, and he was scathing, as Mick has said, about Gove's changes and how it's turned out. And, and really was the most radical thinker 
when it came to what the future should be like. Blunkett had been Shadow Secretary for ages and he used to talk with me in Birmingham before he became Secretary of State. Um, and, and I was involved closely with them and I think he did try to make a huge difference, particularly to school improvement. He, he, he really changed things. Uh, interesting that Mix made the point that that it really came from the the exchequer, the Every Child Matters, but of course Balls was working in the exchequer. He he was an economist and treasurer by by political inclination, so he too had prepared himself, and certainly Gove as Shadow had done that. Uh, and uh, whether one agrees or doesn't agree with what they did, they were the ones who made the most difference. If you think of the other secretaries of state, it's remarkable they make any difference at all because they don't last more than about two years. I think the average is two years and a couple of days or something, um, a bit more than that. Two, two years and a couple of months and a few days is the average uh, stay. They get about six hours notice. Think of becoming a head teacher or a teacher. They get about six hours notice. They don't know anything about it, well, and I, Jeff, certainly, I, I think that head teachers do know something about it before they ever become a head teacher. They don't know anything about it. They inherit an entry of intractable problems. Charles Clark had coined the lovely phrase which he translated in a book called The Too Difficult Box, which he says politicians have a tendency to put things into in the conscious that they're not going to stay very long. Uh, and and they deal with the previous agenda. They're looking for a bit of legacy, making a difference, and then they move on. Uh, so it's not, it's not the best system to get a steady plan that's long-term for the education system. And my feeling is that in this new age, which we think should be one of hope, ambition, and as Mick says, collaborative partnerships, because I think autonomy has slipped off the agenda, the autonomy of the individual school, as people are pushing uh, the notion of partnerships of schools and multi-academy trusts. I'm sure we'll come on to that, Jeff. Um, but as they're pushing that, they've relegated the importance of the autonomy of schools. And I think that's a good thing, really, because it's only by collaborating that we're really going to learn where the best practice is and how we take things forward to improve on our previous best. I just reflect on that. That's in our title. And really, on the whole, it's a title that starts in the classroom and ought to permeate the whole system. I want a teacher who's going to teach me how to improve on my previous best performance. I want them to say, Tim, kids like you, my estimate is they do X, but I predict you'll do Y, whatever it may be, partly because you're really motivated, or it might need, mean I need to kick up the backside. What do you want to do? And you set your target. I think we've been bedeviled by targets that have come from the top rather than come from the bottom. And that permeates what we do. And it's absolutely integral to making sure improving on best, previous best is not an empty phrase, but it's a realistic direction from which children 
begin to realise more of their talent and be able to think for themselves and act for others. Beautifully put, uh, Tim. And it's interesting, we're recording this just after the book has come out, but also just before the government puts a white paper before Parliament in March or or so. And it's interesting what you're saying in the book and what you've said there. That notion of autonomy is definitely not in favour anymore. That was the great promise of 2010 reform, that you're the head teacher, you know best. But, of course, it was predicated on for my school to do better, your school has to do worse, ultimately. Now, I want to just do two things in the next part of the conversation, if that's right. First of all, it is so all-encompassing. You talk about kind of political influence, you've got curriculum, of course, you've got teacher professionalism, school improvement, accountability... I'd like to ask each of you just to take one theme. So, Mick, you might want to talk about curriculum, what we've learned about it, and where would we go from here? And, and Tim, if you were happy to, I'd particularly like you to talk about what I think is one of those areas in education that people simply won't address for all kinds of reasons, which is the whole business of admissions. And I remember at one of our roundtables, you talked about why we need to address admissions, because ultimately... Uh, in a sense, the culturally rich get richer while the culturally poor get poorer with an emissions process, which is Byzantine in its complexity, but is predicated on certain people getting through. Anyway, you'll you'll talk about that. So I want to just, just ask each of you just to talk about one particular theme. And then what I'd like to do is just talk about, so the optimism in the book is about what? What do we see in terms of the future? So Mick, can I ask you just first of all, just to reflect on whichever of the themes covered in the book you'd particularly just like to give a reflection on that? There are a, a series of there is a series of themes in the book, Jeff, as you rightly say. I'll just, just talk for a minute about the accountability regime, if that's okay, um, because it was fascinating for us to really delve into the impact that accountability in all its forms is having on professionalism, on leadership. Uh, and on the way children experience life. And uh, it was striking for us. Let's start with Ofsted, which Tim has already mentioned is such a powerful force. When we talked to secretaries of state, they all believed that Ofsted was an essential feature of the education system, and it was almost a non-negotiable, and in its current form it was as it should be. And here and there people had altered its remit a little bit, but... Most of the secretaries of state saw it as okay. And what's, what's sort of interesting about that is nobody else that we talked to thought Ofsted was okay, including uh, former chief HMI. And so what you got was a situation where the ministers believe Ofsted has got some uh, valid uh, job to do in the system, but everybody else wants to see reform. Now, we don't think Ofsted should go but we do think it needs to be uh, thought about a lot and have its role modified in order to make a better impact on the way children experience learning. And could you could you just give us a flavour of what modification of Ofsted might might entail? Well, we th- we think the government ne- governments need help to get out of the sort of mess it's in with Ofsted, and we we think that we ought to be looking at collaboration. Uh, in the way that schools are inspected. So we think, by the way, that we've gone far in, as in the route of multi-academy trust, there's no going back from that. So let's get schools into workable partnerships, maybe 20, 30 schools at maximum, and therefore Ofsted would be uh, expected to 
look at the work of the partnership and maybe they could do things like uh, nominate a school or a couple of schools that they would inspect and then the, the partnership the mat or the or the partnership would nominate two other schools and in Ofsted would inspect them with the view of trying to work out whether the the partnership knew the extent of quality in its school and knew where it was going in terms of improving on previous best and could demonstrate improvement on previous best in a whole range of aspects of schooling. And Ofsted's job therefore would be to really build a picture of good practice across the region, across the country that would enable schools to learn from each other in the way that I think schools want to and the system wants to so that uh, we spread good practice in a, a, a really tangible way rather than simply asking some schools to tell other schools what they do. We also think that Ofsted should um, reduce its regulatory functions so things like safeguarding can surely be left to a safeguarding authority and aspects of health and safety left somewhere else so that Ofsted really becomes that sort of professional educational community of interest that enables schools to be yet more professional and more focused on continual improvement and taking things forward. Our, our concerns about accountability also went back to uh, the exam and the testing system which we think is uh, far worse than is often portrayed. It's a norm-referenced system. We were, we were surprised that very few secretaries of state understood what norm-referencing was. I mean, David, David Blunkett told us that his one regret was that at the time he didn't know what norm-referencing... He didn't realise that exams were norm-referenced and, and he now reflects that exams are shot, as he called it. Uh, we, we think that the exam system needs reform and one of the reasons that the accountability system is as it is is that there is no defined legislated purpose for our school system which allows secretaries of state to steer the agenda for schooling in whatever direction they want and therefore be held to account for it in whatever direction a secretary of state wants to take it and we think there needs to be a significant effort on agreeing and we think there is a consensus but legislating for the sorts of purposes that our schools should be aiming for and therefore knowing how we judge them against those purposes. Really clearly put. Thank you very, very much, Mick. There's, there's so much there which we, ha we haven't got time to unpack. So I'm going to go to Tim instead. And if you were happy either just to reflect on what we've just heard, but particularly just to talk about why admissions has to be one of those no-go areas that we now do go into, Tim. Yeah, well, uh, certainly just reflecting a little bit on that, um, to say simply that we, we ought to have, put simply, each partnership of schools having a license to assess they were exams will be nationally set locally marked regionally mo moderated much easier to do moderation now than it was because of the advances in digital communication um, and if a school was found to be out of kilter in its outcomes its license would be suspended and it'd be put under another partnership until it proved it was there and that would be part looking at that and its assessment process would be part of the Ofsted arrangements which Mick has outlined. Kids should take exams when they're ready rather than at a predetermined point 
and all our witnesses regretted that they hadn't implemented the much wider look at assessment that Mike Tomlinson had proposed um, in the late noughties and which they now think should be implemented. That's most of our witnesses, not all of our witnesses. Um, for instance, Gavin Williamson thought exams were fine, but 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 he, he, he was an exception in many respects from the other witnesses we had. And it does link to the whole theme of the book, which which is, look, are we going to be equitable? And is that different from seeking equality uh, or equality of treatment? So we have a section in which we are suggesting that equity ought to be the overriding concern of any schooling system, irrespective of your background, you ought to have an an opportunity that is differentiated so that uh, kids have the best chance of growing up being a fulfilled adult, contributing to the fulfilment of others. And I I remember one of our witnesses, Anthony Seldon, who, who has spent a lifetime in the private sector of education, reminding us that uh, uh, Eton and Winchester and Marlborough and all those schools are tremendous schools uh, with tremendous facilities, but there was only one problem with them. They had the wrong children in them. And he he was very concerned, as indeed are we, that kids don't have uh, a fair chance or an equal chance of growing up successfully. And that we ought to examine those poisons within the system that get in the way of that. One of the poisons is uh, admission arrangements to schools. Uh, and uh, we we believe that it really should be a case that parents have uh, the opportunity to express their choice of school, but that everybody should have the right to attend the school that's closest to where they live. And, and, that is a difficult concept i have to tell you to understand i've tr- tried to persuade it must be my my hopeless way of explaining things i tried to explain that to uh, politicians when i was in birmingham for 10 years and in the end they 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 could see what i meant namely that through the accident of where you live you might have three uh, opportunities to get into a, three different schools over the rights of somebody who lived further away. Well, I think you should only have the right to get in the right, which shouldn't be overridden by another person's choice, to get into the school that's closest to you. Uh, and, And that, it seems to me, is a principle that ought to cover our admissions arrangements. At the moment, some schools play fast and loose with both the policies for admissions and with the implementation of those admissions and moving to academies has hasn't helped uh, but i think moving towards partnerships of schools uh, will help and we need to establish an independent authority locally either very locally or regionally uh, under national guidelines to get fairer admission policies and then let that local body, it, it has been the local authority in the past, really run the admission system. And and that should apply to every school. Now, you may advance the argument uh, that, well, that doesn't remove the fact that if people are really well off, they can, 
they can get their children into private schools. And by the way, I, I, I now live on the edge of Oxford um, and Oxford, uh, there are the, the, the number of children who go to private schools is 25 percent, whereas nationally it's 7 percent. Uh, we, we think that has an impact on the schooling systems. And, and we think that what should happen is this, that we should introduce equity taxes and we should levy a charge on um, the independent sector. We, we, we thought it might be half the difference between the state uh, age-weighted pupil unit and the private uh, one. And half the difference will be paid in an equity tax and given locally and distributed to make a more level playing field and better chances of success. That's one of the more outrageous proposals in the book, and that will probably put people off reading it. Um, and we did put it in for a bit of fun, but the question of equity and admission arrangements is not a bit of fun. It's immensely important. At the moment, we, autonomy has led to um, the pecking order and markets of schools has led to some schools being perpetually scrabbling around to persuade staff to be on the school, scrabbling to get successful leaders of those schools. And in the meantime, the children in them are not getting a fair deal. We've got to tackle that. And we hope that we've identified many of the poisons absolutely outside the school because we've never had a better time for the quality of teachers and the leadership of schools that issues outside the school which could so easily be reformed i'm amazed they've not been in order that uh, every kid attends a really good school and that might bring you on jeff if there's an opportunity to uh, talk about uh, the open school but I won't do it now. I'll hand back to you and see what Mick says about what I've said. OK, that's uh, fascinating. Uh, two, two, two things. One, there is an underpinning optimism about all of this stuff, which we're going to uh, finish by just talking about. But secondly, you bring us back to equity. We've got a good education system, but it's good if you happen to live in a particular place or come from a particular background. The big challenge is how do we make sure we've got a system working for everyone? Interestingly, what you're saying in the book is that notion of families of schools collaboration has to be part of the future. So should we just look at what, what you think, each of you, is for you the big takeaway from what you're thinking and what your witnesses have told you in terms of what would be the, the key drivers of improving our education system? I'll, I'll come to Mick first and then to Tim before we wrap up. So Mick, where do we go from here? Well, in the book, we, uh, we, we've got a chapter 13, which uh, summarises the sorts of things we think... Uh, are possible if the if the system dare grab them and uh, we we were torn because we listed our steps forward and we were worried that some people would think we were sort of hopeless old romantics or you know we were away with the fairies and therefore we were hesitant about being too imaginative inventive creative uh, but at the same time we wanted to be uh, forceful enough to say look we can See, see change in the way it needs to go if we have the nerve to do it. So we outlined what we call six foundation stones. These are things that Tim just mentioned, the open school. They're things that we think the system could relatively quickly embrace if we have the nerve, the encouragement, for example, in a white paper, 
or the political will to move it. And then we later talk about 39 stepping stones towards a better future. And these are structural things, the things that need to be addressed across the system in order to make sure that we give our youngsters the best deal, especially in terms of equity and equality. Uh, our six foundation stones are um, including the open school, which I'll leave Tim to talk about in a moment. But our first one is that there should be a, a schooling framework commission, which is established to really identify the purposes of schooling and where schooling needs to move over the next period of time. And we, we suggest the Standing Framework Commission is a, a group of people from all aspects of the school system who would bring their insight and understanding and we need to be careful not to get just the usual suspects and all the issues of how you get the right people onto it. But their job is to inform the Secretary of State of the way in which they think education should unfold so that the Secretary of State needs to really consider the issues raised and then respond. And we understand in a democracy that governments might want to take thinking in a particular direction, but their duty would be to respond uh, by, by answering the issues raised by the standing framework to say, the schooling framework, to say, these are things that we agree with and these are the things that we're not going to take forward and these are the reasons why. And that, that framework commission continues to work over time to keep advising the Secretary of State with a major report of periodic interviews, uh, planned periodic interviews, to, cons to, to not coincide with the change of government that comes about at elections. It's, uh, it, it's an influence on the system that stops any individual Secretary of State taking the agenda in their own direction uh, unfettered. Just to say, mate, there is, what I like about that is what, what we've had until now is a rather polarised sense of you either lift education out of politics altogether, which you, you hear a lot of people saying, which strikes me as utterly naive, given the fact that actually it's taxpayers' money, politicians are elected, you've got to have accountability for it. Um, so there's either that or you simply accept the status quo, which is you can have a, a politician who sweeps in saying, we don't want mice and men being taught in English. And what you're saying, essentially, is you can lift it part way out of the political cycle but have people advising the secretary of state on what will make the impact that that's the essence of it isn't it that's right and it's it's uh, advice that's uh, not partial in the sense the secretary of state isn't appointing their own advisors who are likely to agree with them but advice which is consistent in the sense that the group of people that are advising bring uh, their insight from different facets of the, the system. And the good thing about it, I think, is it, it overcomes that call that's been around for many, many years now for taking education away from politics. We, we don't think that's a possibility. And in a sense, we don't think it should be. It's a democracy and we, we elect to work together to make our society a better place. We should, we should tolerate each other and be much more open in terms of where we go. We think the first job of the uh, the Standing Commission on the Framework Commission on Schooling would be uh, to define the purposes. And while we give it a go in the in the book, we think the uh, system would be far more secure if there were significant and agreed purposes for schooling that were clearly understood and clearly communicated and clearly agreed. 
So, so that would be one of our five, one of our six foundation uh, stones. Uh, and I suggest Tim might want to talk about the open school one, which emanates from that. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure you suggest people re read the book to see the, the other ones. But even just that, that clarity of thinking around something which isn't uh, on the one end, politics has nothing to do with education. On the other end, it has everything to do with it. I just think there's something so thoughtful and helpful about that. Tim, explain the, the open school and give us your reflection in terms of where we go from here to to make uh, an education system which is good, genuinely world-class, if that's the phrase we want to use. Well, I think it'll take a little while because if you look back historically, when Callaghan gave his 76 speech, it took probably nearly seven, eight, nine, ten years before... Uh, there was real action on the new direction to take. I think there is a similar disillusion, and I think it'll take some time. I do hope the white paper, which we're talking about, will help in that direction. And you're on a commission, Jeff, which, which, which the Times is running, and I hope that too will contribute during this current year to a debate about where we ought to go. I think the present Secretary of State may well be up for realising that uh, things need to move on. Um, we think that there's huge change facing our next generation of kids. Um, one only has to mention uh, AI um, or robotics or automation, nanotechnology, social media, climate change, that the turmoil of accelerating change facing our future youngsters is enormous. Certainly collaborating and working together in teams is the only way we'll solve some of those problems, which means that our schooling system ought to be more collaborative and less dependent on measuring individuals against each other. And that that's what we're we're pitching. That's what's governed our thinking in, in what we propose. The open school, I I just think it's it, it's so attractive. Uh, the open university was a significant had a significant impact, not merely on the uh, the people who went to the open university. It had a significant impact on every undergraduate in the country, as other universities uh, that they they took summer jobs to be the, the academic staff, the young academic staff to be uh, tutors in the open university and earn a bit on the side. The outcome, as I saw when I went to Keele University in the middle of my career uh, to run their education department, uh, was immense all over the different faculties where they had learnt from and used some of the very best materials that the Open University had developed. We think that there is now a chance to do the same thing in schooling. So the Open School, which I think could well be housed with the Chartered College, the, the Education Endowment Fund, and located in the Open University, and we'd need a philanthropist to pay for it. It ought to be a curation of the best materials, the best uh, courses, the best experiences uh, that are available. And if I was a youngster attending my local school um, and I would belong to that open school and on, on the school staff, 
there will be open school tutors in addition to being members of that school. And so the open schools resources would be a resource for the teachers in the schools and the pupils in the schools and why not the parents to access the best of what there is so that it would enhance the quality and particularly pertinent for schools on the wrong side of the tracks who have difficulty in recruiting staff um, and you would blend uh, which is a popular word now you would blend digital learning with real-time learning so if I was in year nine my open school tutor who ought to be the member of staff who, ha who forms relation really good friendly relationships and the kids relate to them that sort of a teacher skilled teacher in skilled pedagogy would be saying look Tim I think you should take x and y course uh, which are offered through the Open School. It's different from the Oak Academy uh, because the Oak Academy is the best of what is, not the best of what might be. And I think the Open School needs to be that. And it needs to be at arm's length from government because uh, otherwise they will dominate it. We'll have another National Institute of Education. and We haven't talked about teacher education, but that's a worrying phenomenon where the government is going to prescribe which books um, would-be teachers are going to study. I, we're not in favour of that at all. We'll get clones and technocrats rather than the, the teachers with the intellectual curiosity, the determination to make a difference, the willingness to take risks and the rigorous certainty that they can change life for the better that's that's that those are the teachers that really make a difference and we've got so many of them in the present generation that we're bound to have hope for the future but i, I think the open school and we outline it in much greater detail uh, is a possibility it would need a major foundation or possibly and ideally three or four of the major foundations through philanthropy putting a sum of money in capital, the interest of which ran the open school in the forthcoming years. Um, that's what we need. And, and allied with that is making sure that the teacher who wants to pursue their career in the classroom and not go through a management route, which all of us have done, and who is curious about extending their pedagogy we think there should be a post of expert consultant teacher uh, in probably on a ratio mick will correct me if i'm wrong he i would say one to a hundred um he would probably say one to fifty um but we need those teachers who've made a career and are the pedagogical expert that i as a young teacher go to for coaching, for understanding more about assessment, uh, for uh, knowing which materials and where to go to and what to do. They are the teachers who, who the, the system doesn't acknowledge and doesn't celebrate. And we've got to do that if we're going to build a cohort of teachers in our new schools that would be, there would be schools all taking advantage of an open school to improve on our previous best and enable those youngsters we've described to crack some of those issues which we can see coming over the horizon. 
Uh, fantastic, um, Tim. You know, we started the discussion by talking about an age of trust and what you're talking about there is getting back to a trust in our teachers. In that first phase of education, we're talking about the open university defines itself. In the future, you're talking about the open school. I mean, I, there's so much in that about our schools improving on previous best. Tim Brickhouse, Mick Waters, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. I echo Mick. It's been a pleasure. And Let's let's be determined to change the world for the better. The Ask School Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton.